Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Hello and welcome to No Accounting for Taste, the podcast for accountants from Accounting Web. .co.uk. I'm Tom Herbert, the editor, and I'm delighted to say that we have a guest panellist today, Carl Reader. Hey, good morning, Tom. Carl, you're owner of um, accounting firm D&T and co-founder of TaxGo. That's correct. Fantastic. And uh, we're looking forward to sharing some of your insights today. And also with us, Richard Hattersley, our practice correspondent. Hi, Richard. Hello, everybody. Fantastic. So we're going to be talking about the, the big four again. Um, we're going to be entering into the world of the small practice and we're going to be looking at the five million dollar comma so exciting stuff and for our in-depth conversation we're also going to be looking at uh, the state of the profession a small topic for accountants but hopefully we'll do it justice so let's get started um guess big news on the site uh this week was the news that the financial reporting council were clamping down on big four audits it's a topic we keep on coming back to so big four accounting firms are going to face fines of up to 10 million pounds as of june 1st 2018 um yeah it's it's one of those things that gets um, pulses racing on the uh, on the site certainly a bit of a bit of big four bashing. Um, we had some comments, uh, didn't we, Richard? Yep. So I I trawled the uh, the comments, and there's two in particular which uh, jumped out at me. Um, for Tears for Fears, you came to remember Tears for Fears. This was certainly a mad world for them. They commented uh. that. Uh, Unfortunately, this is what happens when you get overworked and underqualified university graduates. And then we also have uh, the AccountWare member, Remember Scarborough, who commented, Any, anyone tell me what the audit is for? So much conflict of interest, that means we're never really surprised when a company goes bust, even when the audited statutory account show a wonderful picture. Nothing more than a worthless, expensive box ticking exercise. Goodness, yeah, it's a prevailing view on the uh, on the site from a lot of our small practitioners, anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly for the piece, uh, I spoke to um, uh, an accounting professor from uh, Bournemouth, Stella Fernley, who was, uh, yeah, I mean, she said that ten million is not really going to scare the big four, and I mean. One of the points of it was that the FRC had no upper limit of fines anyway. So why are they why are they putting in this ten million pound limit? So that did seem quite odd. But there are a range of um, other methods that um, uh, other um, sanctions that uh, were going to be brought in, including sort of exclusion from the accountancy profession for anyone found guilty of dishonesty. One other thing I would add that um, uh, Professor Fernley added in was about how what the FRC was going to do with the money. So she said, rather scathingly, they could hand it over to the government and use it to disband themselves um, <laughs> and set up a proper system with real teeth um, that could be charged with protecting the interests of our SME sector and smaller firms who have had accounting and auditing rules dumped on them by the FRC. So, yeah, watch this space then. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah, it could be interesting. Um, so, yeah, Richard, um, you were going to look at um, yeah. small change. Yeah, so from uh, a small change, uh, <laughs> a potential uh, penalty. Big change to small change. <laughs> yeah. uh, so with this in particular, my baby small change has uh, reached his 17th birthday this week, coming up to 20. 
And for those listening who haven't got a clue what I'm on about, what is small change? Well, small change is a weekly series we do on the web, on the counter web, where we speak with a uh, practitioner each week, and we ask them about their daily routines, ask them about different trends in the profession. And I just thought it'd be quite interesting just to review some of these and to find out exactly what these people are saying and whether there are any trends we can uh, pick from this. Um, as w one of the first things that uh, came up as a particular trend was around making tax digital. We we always ask the question, making tax digital or making tax difficult? Uh, always, that always comes with a laugh from them, as you can imagine. But anyway, the uh, on this particular point, making tax digital, it was most of them probably uh, I'd say about 99% were pro going in this direction but of course they had some reservations so I thought that was quite interesting mm. uh, an interesting look as, as to how people actually viewing this sort of shift and the government's decision to strip back the initial plans and I think that's a lot of people are much more positive in this direction now um, I, think that, I think you'd find you really struggle to find an accountant who was mm. anti-digital and it just I mean that's that's sort of like trying to hold back the tide really isn't it I, I, I don't know um, so from a tax code perspective we actually had an accountant sent a handwritten letter asking if we could take on his clients to help him avoid all this stuff that's happening Wow so they're still out there they might not be in our bubble they might not be visitors to accounting web they might not be LinkedIn commentators but there are accountants who just don't get it. Mm, okay, yeah. And, I mean, <laughs> when making text digital, if, if, if the current sort of um, system rolls out as, as per the government schedule, I mean, what do you envisage happening? I mean, is this going to be a huge pain for uh, accountants with those sorts of clients? I, I think initially, yes. Um, I think there'll be pain in updating systems. I think that... You know, people are adopting cloud technology for the, for the sake of MTD rather than for the benefits it can bring. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is this software is coming in, but it's a burden and, and, and you know, they've got to do the training and all that just for MTD. But then the reality will kick in that there's more work mm -hmm. and I believe that there's a good proportion of accountants who will look to charge their clients for extra work when there's no real benefit being provided. Um, so I think you'll have a pain to start with, you'll have some benefit of extra fees, but then there will be automated solutions that uh, actually um, take the burden of MTD away from business owners and hence away from accountants' pockets. Mm -hmm. So pain, pleasure, pain, unfortunately. Goodness. Wow. Um, so, yeah, as I say, what, what's, um, what's D&T's response to MTD being? So for us, I, we've got well over a thousand of our clients on cloud accounting anyway mm -hmm. so it's something that we're going to have to wrap in um, we're seeing a real opportunity with our advisory services in that given that businesses are going to have to keep their data more up to date and more together it gives us a very good platform to offer services over and above the compliance um, the reality is i i believe within five to ten years the compliance work so preparing accounts buying tax terms and so on is going to be pretty much automated. Um, it doesn't even need um, complicated AI or machine learning. Um, the processes we go through to do this work is quite formulaic. We could we could map it out in a flowchart, and because of that, we need to, um, as a profession, diversify our income. Um, so we're going to use this as a platform to be able to do that. 
Goodness, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard, uh, were there any other ch- um, trends from small change? Yeah, uh, flexible working seems like a big trend happening in the profession at the moment. Uh, unsurprisingly, the biggest change uh, most people have seen since uh, since they qualified is, of course, tech. Although uh, there were some some people talking about how uh, there's still big changes to come, so, such as Elaine Clark mentioned that um, uh, a big change that she's still waiting to see is around um, women still being marginalised in the world of accounting. Of course, this is uh, a big topic at the moment with the whole gender pay gap. Yeah, conversation. Maybe a, second, a small com- I don't know. Maybe a small debate happened on the site around that. Yeah, <laughs> if you get a second, there's. Uh, I, th- I think we're up to about seventy comments on that article now. So, uh, yeah, a lively debate. Should we a say. lively one. And just one more thing is, of course, we're all addicted to our emails. Uh, one of the main things, the first thing people do, pretty much every uh, candidate we've had for the small change, first thing they do as they start the day is check their emails, and of course, uh, outside office hours. Pretty much every one of them is on their phone checking their email. So I think we are very much addicted and uh, after a nice digital detox. I so can I, can I just give one tip because um, I'm conscious of a discussion later. There might not be too many takeaways, but this has quite literally transformed my working life. Um, I, I now batch up my emails, but I have them received by my PA. And she just puts over the ones that I need to see at 2 p.m. every day. So in the morning, I can focus on what's important, and then I can respond to the emails later on. And honestly, it's been transformational. I've got an auto response, so anyone who emails me um, gets told that it'll only be checked maximum once a day. Nobody's complained. Really, because one of the things that one uh, one person in the small change series mentioned was that it's what clients want. They want to that instant response. Do you think that's more down to the clients, or more down to the actual practitioner thinking that's what they're It's wants? down to the perception of the practitioner in my mind and the need for self-importance. So look, if something was urgent, if your house was on fire, you're not going to email the fire station, are you? <laughs> you're going to pick up the blower and ring 999. Um, that's the reality of it. So on my auto-response, people know if they need to get hold of me, they can, um, you know, if they know me well enough, they can phone my mobile or they can speak to someone in my team who can get hold of me. Um, so there is the ability to contact me urgently, but the reality is nowadays we use email as an excuse not to speak to people for when it's not that urgent. So if if something is urgent, we will pick up a phone. If it's um, just an inquiry we want to make, we send an email. But we've conditioned ourselves as recipients to respond immediately. And I, I think it's all in our own minds, not the centre's minds. Yeah, I, I, I think we do perhaps rely a little bit too much on the email. There may be someone who's just sitting just across the office from I me. Always and I always have them rather than walking across. <laughs> it might just be me being incredibly lazy, but yeah, it is. We are very much reliant on emails yeah. these days and might be something to break out of. Good stuff. Right, thank you, Richard. That's uh, that's great. Um, we're going to be looking at the curious case of the $5 million comma. Um, so this... Um, this was a case over over the pond uh, in America, which uh, millions of dollars hinged on a missing piece of punctuation. So, um, last year, a group of tr- truck drivers from uh, the state of Maine sued their employer, uh, Oakhurst Dairy, for unpaid overtime and lost wages. So, uh, I, I believe the each American state, um, I'm sure our listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, has their own set of overtime laws. Um, and in the state of Maine's, um, 
was uh, a few exemptions where time and a half for overtime was paid, uh, would not be paid. Uh, these include canning, processing, preserving, freezing, drying, marketing, storing. I don't know why marketing's in the middle there. Uh, I have all these sort of manual things. But anyway, uh, storing, packing for shipment or distribution. Now, the missing comma, there should have been, uh, and we'll put this in the show notes, but should have been uh, after shipment. Now, this is what's known as an Oxford or serial comma, which... Uh, you know, during my days as a, uh, a secondary school English teacher, um, I remember teaching, uh, was something, you know, it's an optional piece of punctuation. Some people like it, some people don't. I believe the band Vampire Weekend aren't big fans of it, but this is a family-friendly show, so I'm not going uh, to repeat the uh, song lyrics. Um, but, uh, so, it's just a piece of punctuation used in, in a list of three or more things to provide clarity, separation. Now, this clarity... Uh, was missing in between shipment and distribution. So in the driver's view, uh, packing and distribution was one activity, not two separate ones, exempt from overtime. The judge agreed with them. So all the drivers uh, were due, I think, in a total of $5 million in overtime. Remarkable. Um, wow, that's a spicy comment, that one. It, wow, it certainly is, yeah. So that was, uh, that was quite remarkable. Um, so, yeah, on to our in-depth section now. And I'm glad you said it's a family-friendly show, so I'll have to moderate my comments, won't I? Goodness, <laughs> well, um, you know, the, uh, there's always a, always a first time to get that red explicit box. Uh, <laughs> you yes, she's shaking her head. No, there's no swear box. Excellent. <laughs> okay, Send so. the kids to bed early. <laughs> We've got pipe too. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sort of feeds on from what we've, we 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 discussed earlier um, you know, about the, the the state of profession automation um, advisory, Carl. Yeah, so I I think if we touch on automation to start with, we're coming up to a real crossroads in the accounting financial services world. And in fact, it's affecting businesses in general, where um, businesses if something can be automated it will be automated within the next few years and I mean I, I've done my back of a fact packet model of what I think automation looks like and I think that businesses that have either specialist skills or interpersonal skills as one of the um, key features are the ones that will be okay so we take dentists for example um, nobody likes going to a dentist particularly not if they haven't got specialist skills and they can't charm you to get in that seat, okay? Um, you know, the dentist is the safest person from automation. And we might think that accountants are safe because of specialist skills. But actually, those specialist skills only apply on tasks that can't be formulated and can't, can't be put into a flowchart, as we said with automation of compliance work. So we're hitting that crossroads of where, as firms, we need to decide whether we're going to be following um, Michael Porter's model, whether we're cost leaders, so we're going to be cheap and cheerful, or if we're going to be product differentiators and do things differently. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the buzz at the moment is around advisory, and that's how to do it differently. Um, but I'm not so sure that it's being done correctly. Mm, yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a hot... Anyone reading the site or looking on LinkedIn, if you're connected with a, a reasonable number of accountants, you'll see that, that debate raging. I mean, not only the sort of uh, 
advice, you know, do it or not, the conversation does seem to be moved on to what's the best way to do it. You yes. Know, some some firms have gone down the niching route. Um, others others are sort of getting in specialist teams. I mean, certainly something you mentioned earlier that DNT were doing. You were you were hiring sort of non-accountants into the practice. Yeah, that's right. So um, and we don't follow the traditional partnership model. Um, yeah, I think the partnership model's broken, but that's a subject for a different conversation altogether. Um, but we operate our business um, far more from a, a corporate perspective in that we, we effectively have CEO, COO, CFO, um, but we also have a practice officer which represents the advisors. Um, because, let's be honest, portfolio partners who look after clients aren't necessarily the best at running a firm. So myself, I don't have any clients at all. Um, probably my clients are thankful for that in truth um, yeah, and I don't believe that you can run a practice effectively while juggling let's say a 500k portfolio because the demands of the clients don't marry up with the demands of growing and building a practice so so we set that up differently now within our um, advisors section um, that traditionally would have been accountants but we've recently recruited non-accountants so those are people who would clearly have an understanding of financial statements from their history of being in business. So they'll be C-level executives, they would have worked at major corporates or um, built, grown and sold their own businesses. So we've got some real heavy hitters there who would understand a P&L and balance sheet if they were to look at it, but they're not obsessed by it. So you know, they understand that you need profit to ultimately have cash but they don't need to understand the nuances of whatever the latest FRS is or deferred tax disclosures. You know, that, that's a complete irrelevance when it comes to advising a business. So it allows them to focus on um, a balanced approach of where the business is going rather than where the business has been. Because the problem I see with most accountancy-led advice is that typically it's all looking back in the rearview mirror and yeah, if an accountant was to drive a car, the joke could be that 95% of the time they're looking in the mirror and 5% of the time they're looking forwards. If you're running a business, it's com the complete opposite. You want to be mindful of what's happened, but you actually want to see the path ahead. Mm. Do you think that, I mean, I guess that's really good, um, really interesting development for sort of medium or larger larger style practices you know I mm. can I can hear the sort of smaller practitioner mm. members uh, in the back of my How mind I here, just yeah, yeah. going oh well you know, <laughs> uh, um, I mean are there any sort of takeaways for the sort of smaller guys so for the smaller guys I, I think that it's actually easier to adapt your practice if you're smaller mm. the challenge is for medium and larger practices where there's um incumbent teams and practices and ways of doing things it's really really difficult to um, teach an old dog new tricks so um, trying to get people who are specialist tax advisors they enjoy um, researching tax uh, yeah, they, they enjoy all of that stuff then trying to get them to be commercially minded and advise on things like people management leadership change management marketing and so on that's not their bag um, for a smaller practitioner Typically, they're more entrepreneurial, so they've actually um, they've got the drive themselves, and they need to know about marketing and so on for their own practice. Mm. Um, and they just need to. Uh, I, I feel for the smaller practitioners, they're the ones who can do it themselves because they've experienced it themselves. Mm. It's actually I, I would go against what you said. It's trickier for the larger firms to turn the ship around when the guys offering the advice haven't necessarily done it themselves. Mm. Mm. 
Just one question on this. Do you think uh, there might be an issue with when if smaller clients, like sole traders or anything, mm. if they don't really want this advice, they're just quite happy so, how things are? So it all comes down to what the client wants. Um, there are going to be your taxi drivers, your plumbers, your electricians who have decided very deliberately to stay small and... You know, from, let's be honest, the majority of the increase of businesses in the UK has been down to the gig economy. Um, you know, of the 5.5 5 million businesses, 4.5 million of them are micro-businesses and typically wouldn't want advisory services. Now, they won't, you know, we, we're fully conscious they won't want advisory services. They're not going to have it forced down their throat. They're probably not even going to know that we're doing that stuff. Um, for them, I think that ultimately solutions like TaxGo, like Counting Up, um, possibly Free Agent and players like that who would look to automate the compliance process, that's where they're going to be going. Mm -hmm. So um, the traditional accounting practice and the model of um, charging for your time of the value that you add um, won't work for those guys anyway, whether you're offering advisory or not. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, it it, it's one of those things as well that, that one of the other points that, that gets raised is that particularly you're talking about non, non bringing non-accountants into the business. Uh, I'm not going to say that accountants exclusively aren't necessarily the best business people, but I think sometimes that the training perhaps might might knock a bit of the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, complete, out. Completely. So it's it's the training. Um, yeah, certainly when I trained, the saying was prudence prevails. And if you had a choice between one and two, you go for one. Yeah, you always had to um, look at things in a risk averse manner. Um, I think that the culture within firms knocks that out of people. I think that um, I, the word professional doesn't do us any favors because it implies that you need to be. Um, self-employed and actively doing the work rather than owning a business that does the work. Um, for any of you listeners that might have read Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, he's got the cash flow quadrant where he differentiates between a self-employed person and a business owner. Um, often in professional circles, we logically we know it, but emotionally we don't get it mm -hmm. and we sit towards the self-employed business owner. And also we need to look at the personality types who come into accountancy as well. Um, if we were to disc profile most accountants, and we've done it ourselves, the majority are high stability, high compliance, which again doesn't lend itself to entrepreneurialism. Is that something that, I mean, just just imagining the disruption that is already behind us, but I mean, can you, can you see just it, it, it sort of only increasing? In the uh, uh, yeah, massively. So I'm, I'm a big fan of change. I'm not going to lie about that. Mm. So um, I'm one of these people who has more ideas before breakfast than most people have in their life and I, I thrive on change, most people don't. Um, so maybe I'm looking at it optimistically for myself that I want to see change, mm. but I think there absolutely will be change. I think that we've got, we've got the tech automation that is clearly coming in and I don't think it needs complicated AI or ML, it's just gonna happen. Mm. Um, what, once that's happened, I think that there's also a change in customer behavior where they are looking for um, a difference in the way that service is provided. So we've probably all seen that social media um, image that goes around that says you can have it good, you can have it cheap, you can have it fast, you can choose two out of three but you can't have all three. Mm. Well that's rubbish nowadays because look at Google. Okay, Google is immediate, it's excellent and yeah, 
they offer everything, it's free of charge. Why, why would you not use Google? And I think that's what customers are getting used to. Where we used to, as a profession, accept 24 hours for a callback, nowadays, if you ping an inquiry on a website, you get an immediate response. In fact, I ordered an item online on, sorry, I ordered a few items online on Good Friday. Um, I had deliveries on Saturday and Sunday. Okay, one company didn't get back to me with an inquiry until Wednesday, so what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the services that we're judged against, and it's not our accountancy colleagues and friends that we're being judged against, it's businesses like Amazon and Google. So I think there is massive changes happening in the way that buyers behave, and I think that's coming into business-to-business relationships as well. Fantastic. So that's a really long-winded answer to your question, wasn't it? No, yes, it's changing. Com- comprehensive, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. The old, the old too long didn't read there yes. was, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, well, um, fascinating stuff. I'm afraid we're uh, we're out of time for today. Um, just a few uh, a few little plugs at the end here. Um, do uh, enter our Accounting Excellence Awards if you're a uh, in practice or in industry. Um, we're, uh, we're a broad church now, so accountingexcellence.co.uk, entries close on the 20th of April. Uh, Richard, have you got anything? Uh, well, there's like an to... exciting event the day before the uh, award entries, uh, the deadline for that one. On the 19th of April at 11am, we've got the Accounting Excellence Talks, new tax season, new software where it will be myself leading the panel of a star-studded panel of accountants we've got. Uh, Ollie Evans, the small practice award winner from last year. We've got uh, Mike Hutchinson from the Peloton. And we've also got Alex uh, falcon Huyatev, who it, many of you will know as the, uh, the queen of the apps. And they're going to be talking us through uh, how they pick software, how they choose software, their scoping methods. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of tips which you can pick up so you can maybe uh, do a lot of the things what uh, Carl's been speaking about today. So that's a, a can't miss. Stick that in your diary now, 11 a.m. next Thursday, 19th of April. And that's not all. Also on that day at 2 p.m. we've got How to Structure Your Finance Team for Growth, where the former Deliveroo CFO, Philip Green, is joining us to talk us through many of his tactics for doing just that. So two can't miss webcasts next Thursday, the 19th of April. Fantastic. And uh, Carl, um, where can we find out more information about you? Uh, okay, so best place to find me is on social media. Unfortunately, I can't accept any more connections on LinkedIn because I'm capped out of a 30k. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, and there's a Facebook profile at Carl Reader. Fantastic. They're, they're all, all, all your handles are yes, just that, Carl Reader. I'm going to just be spamming you with LinkedIn connect requests now. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I would love to accept them all, but I can't. Oh, oh that's, I, I hadn't realised there was a limit now. I know there was that guy who was really famous because he'd got like one million connections or something. But No, so, you, no so you can have followers. Um, so you can have followers, but you can't have any more connections. Oh, right, okay. Which is really awkward because LinkedIn leaves the connect button on there yeah. and everyone thinks I'm being really rude, but I'm not. Well, there you go. You certainly, we, we, we've been really grateful for you coming in today, Carl. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all very much for listening. And uh, for all your news on the big wide world of accountancy, we're on accountingweb.co.uk. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>